enjoyed to have you on. Um, I I will let you kind of introduce yourself first, um, just because I know uh, you could probably do it better than myself. Happy to do that. Um, should I go now? Yes, that's fine. Okay. Um, so I'm a, a neuroscientist, uh, largely interested in kind of consciousness. Um, in my experimental work as a scientist, I kind of look at perception and memory, but I'm also interested kind of in theoretically in, in issues like con yeah, around emergence of consciousness, which I think is a kind of feature of the life process. So I think it exists outside of brains and all living systems. Uh, and one of my biggest interests is kind of reconciling science and spirituality. So states of uh, consciousness in which people feel their sense of separateness from the rest of existence is a kind of illusion and, and that they they feel a kind of a sense of liberation from suffering as they uh, are reunited with their kind of identity as part of the whole unfolding of existence. Those things, I think, fit perfectly with science, and I'd like to see them understood and appreciated and part of mainstream culture uh, rather than something that's kind of sidelined and seen as kind of strange and not real. Awesome. Yeah. And I, that kind of centers around the subjective experience of each individual being the hard problem, I guess. And that's kind of what what led me to your work was the hard problem became a very interesting phenomena to me, um, just as far as why is it that I can perceive something and interpret it separate from another individual. Um, and that became an unanswerable enigma to me um, that led me to your work. And what I wanted to ask you about in regard to what you just said um, also is your living mirror theory and the idea that basically once an organism separates itself with a membrane or something of that nature from its environment and begins interacting with it, that kind of initiates the conscious process. Is that, is that kind of how that, that goes or am I a little yeah. bit off on that? No, no, no. So I would say it's, it's really the, um, yeah. So a living system, it seems necessarily as you know, all living systems that exist form this kind of three-dimensionally enclosed structure. It seems that that's necessary to resist the kind of disorder that comes with the second law of thermodynamics, just the general trend towards disarray that exists in our universe. Um, yeah. And I think, I think there's, well, I, I offer the kind of living mirror theory as very much as a scientific theory. I'm not kind of trying to claim that there's like a philosophical proof that it has to be this way or anything like I that. Yeah. And it's, it's saying, okay, here's the theory. What if the dynamics of that process um, is what brings into existence consciousness? It's the, it's, in order to anticipate and respond and predict what's going on in your environment and you know yourself and how you're going to react, you need to build up um, models of the world. Uh, and you know here here is where we would want to be kind of precise because if this thing that's being brought into existence is consciousness, um, then I'm going to have to define it more scientifically. So you know you have to be precise. And the the words I use, I use the word belief, uh, which I I mean in a kind of not as in like, I believe that today is Wednesday, you know, not that kind of linguistic belief that you can say is true or false, but just in this, in the way that when I, when I see an apple in front of me and I want to eat it, I, even if I'm not thinking verbally, I believe that apple exists. I'm holding an attitude towards this, this thing that I think is out there in the world. So I use the phrase holding that the world is a certain way. Uh, I don't think people tend to, <laughs> that doesn't tend to click with people, it seems. But to me, that's what I'm, I'm saying. I'm saying like a living system, it holds that the world is a certain way. A rock doesn't hold that the world is a certain way. It just exists. And, but a living system does. And this can be, can be, you know, you can see this in the thermodynamics. And so I think there's a good mathematical basis for, for believing this. Um, but yeah, so in, in this picture, 
again, it's, it's a scientific proposal rather than a philosophical one, I would say, because um, it, it doesn't really deal with the, um, you know, I, I, I think the way to, side, to, to get around the hard problem is kind of to sidestep the, if you, you know, if you think that consciousness and matter are two substances, then you're going to have a really hard time. How does this substance of consciousness get created? I don't view it that way. I don't think matter or uh, mind, I, I don't like using, thinking in terms of substances in general. I don't think a substance is something that kind of exists in it, you know, from its own side. When you, you know, when you leave the room, it's still there. I don't really think matter or mind are like that. I think, I feel like existence is this strange process. Um, and so the best we can do is come up with maps of it. And my theory is a map of, of saying, okay, I think these systems are conscious and I think we have a good intelligible reason to think they are, but it never explains away the phenomenon of consciousness. I think a lot of the, the problem with the way people think about consciousness is that they, with everything else, they, they're under the illusion that the, the maps are the territory. So when we have particle physics, they think that the world is really made up of quarks and bosons and all these other things, rather than appreciating the world is unnameable. It's just it, it just exists. And then we have these maps that help us to, to kind of navigate it. And, but they don't, there's this illusion that no, we've explained it away. It's just all these particles that we've named. So with consciousness, suddenly we're like, well, okay, well, if we have an explanation, we should kind of explain it away. It should seem like a magic trick and I've understood how it's done, but it's not like that. We, we genuinely exist and we're experiencing existence and it's all inspiring, um, which brings us into the kind of spiritual experience thing. Um, and a map of consciousness should be a kind of humble thing, I think. It should be a simple theory of saying, well, here's what systems are conscious and here's which ones aren't and here's why, in the same way that we understand water flows because of the, the kind of molecular and atomic dynamics between the molecules and atoms, you get an intuitive explanation as to why water flows. I think it's a similar thing with consciousness. Yeah, and that's kind of the analogy you use for water flowing as the molecules essentially tumbling over, and that makes sense coherently to understand that's why water flows, is the mechanisms and the laws of physics allow water to flow in that manner. Um, and so what's interesting to me is uh, basically the anti-entropy aspect of it, where something is self-organizing in a way that's creating a more complex, more integrated system over time. And that's kind of what your theory gets at, because that's a, that's a kind of incredible phenomenon to see an organism separate itself from the environment, then interact with it and exchange gases with it, and then arrange itself in a way that's actually creating more complexity over time which you don't really see, like you said, in rocks and non-animate objects, you don't see a self-organization towards a, a common goal. Whereas with prokaryotic to eukaryotic cells, you're seeing a cell really trying to find a way to become more um, evolved, to find a way to um, basically organize itself in a way where it can perceive the environment more complex. And that seems to be in defiance of the second law of thermodynamics, which I know is kind of what your theory gets at. Well, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it defies it in, in from my perspective. So I, I think there's um, a kind of a lawful process of, of, you know, the unfolding of the universe seems to be along this trajectory from order to disorder. You could say, you know, that's the second law. Um, and then within that, the way that I understand islands of order that are, are you know, living systems is that there is a lot of order in the beginning to be borrowed. So we can be made up of um, that kind of that order. We're not creating new order. We're just kind of borrowing that order when we eat food, you know, or the, the so if you take the the sun that's highly ordered and the there's free energy that, that is released as it goes from the kind of the hot sun to the cold space around, 
and then all life on earth you know all the all the plants all the photosynthesis is taking that order making it into kind of bodily order of the vegetables and things that we might then eat and then so the order is being passed around and then also the reason islands of complex islands of order like ourselves can exist seems to be this and this is very recent work in the last few decades and thermodynamics it seems to be that um the second law it like it permits uh islands of order to exist where they take part in the disorder creating process more efficiently so you could say we are machines that kind of make more disorder so if you just let the kind of the mechanism of the universe run down the disorder will be created at a certain point but like again like water flowing over a landscape if it's a steep bit it will flow down more quickly we by by chewing an apple and destroying it and then breaking it down chemically i'm contributing to the to the rundown of the you know the universe from order to disorder so it seems that that's why these things can exist um so my my pitch is very kind of naturalistic it's just a, this unfolding there's really no goal or purpose no teleology um yeah is it is your do you have a different kind of overall picture um, actually, I'm kind of developing my overall picture right now as kind of as we speak and as I've looked into it, because I just became fascinated with it inadvertently, really. And it led me to to really prying into this in a lot of different ways. Um, and it led me to your theory and looking at it. And it really just struck me so incredibly of a self-organizing system. And it seemed like Aristotle and Plato and looking at those older writings, those gentlemen kind of assume the world to have a form and a function. And it, uh, depending on how you take something and turn it into a form, it becomes different. Um, and that, to me, seems like when a tree grows and it self-organizes into a tree, what is it striving for, kind of? Why is it growing upwards? What, why is it organizing in that fractal pattern kind of thing? Because um, that seems to be against entropy. It seemed, but like you said, it makes sense to me that um, it's an interacting system with the sun, with, with basically with rain. You're not really, you're a closed system. So you can have increases in complexity simultaneous with disorder increasing too in the overall. Yeah. So I think it doesn't violate the second law, but, but I'm interested in the, um, I think the intuition that when you, as you say, when you see a tree growing this fractal pattern, it, it, it does clash with our, our felt intuition as to what science is telling us. And I think that's not to do so much with the actual laws, but it's to do with the, you know, the scientific mainstream is, um, has been caught up with a kind of anti-spiritual bent, I would say, where it's the kind, I don't know if it's just a sociological effect where the kind of people who are interested in coming up with maps of the world are often people who are, um, I mean, for example, you know, if someone experiences uh, adversity and trauma, they can get kind of closed off and, and retreat into their minds. And maybe those are, on average, maybe more of those people end up playing with conceptual maps and they end up in science. And so science becomes this kind of this dry thing about just making, I mean, it's also, it's just to do with making maps and living in abstraction rather than really feeling the, the, the felt thing of existence. And so when I, when you see that tree, to me, what's going on there is we, we have this intuition that, well, science says, the universe is just a mechanism. It's just this, like, you can step back from it and you can look at it and it's a meaningless, purposeless kind of thing. And don't get, don't get overexcited because it's just, yeah, this meaningless, basically, toy that, that has no function. I kind of agree with all that on paper, but not with the, um, the feeling it imparts because to me, we're, we're in it. We are of it. And it's, it, this is really happening. The existence is really happening. And it's, it, you know, we find ourselves 
we can only it seems we can only exist at um in these areas of complexity as you point to kind of fractal patterns and that's a relevant part which is that where you get um order and disorder in in between is where complexity lies so there was some work done by the physicist sean carroll recently basically arguing that where life emerges is like if you pour cream into coffee you see all these amazing spiraling fractal dynamics. And so it's not that order is complex or that disorder is complex. They're both not very complex in different ways. But as you transition from order to disorder, you get this insane complexity. And so we, we exist, it seems, at that part, you know, at the, the kind okay. of the bleeding edge uh, in between order and disorder. And so you get these fractal dynamics and add all of this complexity. Um, and it is just unfolding. And it's not, you know, I don't think there's a, my perspective is I think the the coldness of science can actually be married quite nicely with with a kind of non-attached almost Buddhist kind of perspective where you don't invest too much in grand narratives because sometimes that can be a kind of imaginative exercise to escape your own emotions um, and so it can be along that way but there's this fundamental difference of saying it, the universe isn't just anything we're not explaining anything away we're not saying it's it's you can forget about it it's um, it's this awe experience, the, the fact that we exist is something that's really significant and salient and worth noting and feeling into rather than just trying to distance yourself from it with scientific models. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like you had said, the separation between science and having any intermingling with a metaphysical type perspective, then there's such a diver, like a big wall there that, that creates like panpsychism is kind of looked at as the redheaded stepchild of philosophy and science when it comes to the heart problem. And I'm not, I'm not a proponent of panpsychism you know, any more than anybody else, but it is an interesting thing that seems to encapsulate theoretically more how we see the world and understand it. Um, but one, I th one thing I wanted to ask you about in regard to the heart problem is I had read, there was a professor at NYU, I believe his professor, uh, Ned Block is his name. And he was talking on heart problem and he was saying how he polled his students and only 25% of his students even really grasped the idea of phenomenology. And he, I found that pretty incredible, really, because whenever you do try to like this conversation you and I are having, when that conversation is had with most people, it stops very quickly because that phenomenology is not grasped or appreciated in a way that garners like intuition and inquiry further. They just kind of say, well, you see purple, I see purple, what's the big deal? And that's kind of like shuts you down that the conversation ends there. And so I think it's kind of, I kind of wanted to get your opinion on some people seem to stumble into this hard problem and really grab, really want to figure it out. And some just don't even care. And it's kind of an interesting phenomenon that people that do get attached to it. And there's people who just have no grasp of subjective experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, strangely, I think it's that when consciousness is functioning as it's intended to, um, that's actually when you're not, you don't become interested in it. So the philosopher Thomas Metzinger in particular has written about this, this idea of consciousness being, the contents of consciousness being transparent. So when I see that apple that I want to eat, what's really happening is there's a phenomenal experiential, uh, you know, image you could say of an apple. And, you know, this organism is using that simulation of an outside world to then interact with this quantum buzz of whatever's out there that doesn't have an appearance and but we navigate in it and then I can extract that energy and I can survive. Um, and so in that situation, you have, you know, you think that you're seeing an objective world outside of you through the kind of clear lenses of, you know, it's like your eyes are just these clear windows that you can see out of. And this is, a, you know, a um, philosophical 
position called naive realism where you think, okay, the glass in front of me just exists. I'm seeing it effortlessly. And there's not really anything to be spoken about in terms of consciousness. You know, in that situation, you're kind of like, what is consciousness? I'm just, I see it, it's there. It's, you know, so then in different experiences, you know, if someone takes a psychedelic, then it's what Matt Singer writes about. As you get a kind of melting of these different representations together, suddenly the contents of consciousness become opaque. You see them for what they are. You're no longer seeing through them like windows. You're just like, oh, okay. My entire experience, my entire life has been in this space of consciousness. Um, And so if you have any experience like that, you're more inclined to say, okay, well, what's going on here? Like if I want to know anything about my existence and my situation, I've got to start to question what is this space of consciousness? Um, But yeah, if you don't have those experiences, then I can see why you would just go about your day basically. Yes, okay, that was kind of, it's not to say that people who don't grasp it are wrong. It was more or less what leads people to pursuing into it because it is such a phenomenal problem or not problem really but but question to ask and it seems to come to those that engage in psychedelics or eastern practices something that brings down the level of self to where you feel self and other kind of dissolved and and so it's kind of interesting to me that it's that um the separation what brought me to it was the separation between non-living and living matter and then trying to understand where because when you have the origin of matter and then it develops into planetary bodies where in that process does dna arise as the instruction manual to self-organize. And so I, I wanted to see, since your, your living mirror theory kind of seems to be in this way, do you think potentially that DNA and its structure itself is where consciousness could be embodied? Because it seems like an instruction manual and it can't really have an instruction manual unless you have time and consciousness first. So it seems like DNA may play or RNA may play a, a role in this. Yeah, so there's a there's a debate about the origins of life, abiogenesis, and whether it's kind of replication first, like through a mechanism like DNA, or metabolism first, whether it's actually the cell wall structure and the behavior that comes first. Um, there's always new evidence coming in, and, you know, I mean, this is a very murky area. We can't really, you know, go back and see what happened to the origins of life. But my instinct is metabolism... Uh, as in just the phenomenon of living, of adapting and keeping yourself going, of self-perpetuating. Um, to me, that is the essence of life. And I can I can imagine a living system existing without DNA. I can imagine existing, uh, you know, like it's it's a it's a kind of it's an active process of being a living system. It's a kind of hurricane of you know, like a tornado that just keeps going and going and going. And in that process, I think DNA these these kind of long chain molecules is a useful way to to keep itself going replication is a very useful way to to keep going um okay you know, especially especially if you yeah oh sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you um no, 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 yeah no um uh I, I see what you're saying yeah and so dna is kind of a, a emergent to that process right. where you have right. disorder like you were saying I, I i like the how you captured it with there's dis there's order trending to disorder but in that medium between that then and there you have arrangements of complexity that seem like order but they're merely facades of, of disorder increasing essentially yeah that's it yeah it's an interesting way of saying it because I, I i tend to i think of them as order but you're right that they you could say that it's just a mask it's it's a uh an it, it's a way that that more more rapidly producing disorder actually looks like something else. It looks like it's yes. order because permanence is an illusion. You know, impermanence seems to be at all levels seems to be a real fundamental aspect, both in the mind and in the material world. Um, and so, yeah, if we think a living system is is 
ordered in a way that's, that has any permanence, then that's an illusion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what goes back to what you were saying, kind of on the Buddhist psychology of it. Buddhist, right. of course, everything arises and dissipates. And I know kind of they get to that point with their self-transcendence and their meditations is, is kind of the goal is to cut that illusion out and to see the self for what it is as an illusion. And when you do that, you kind of be, you do have that transcendent experience. But at that point, you either have to accept that loss of self as how, you know, you're almost meaningless, essentially. That's how I felt. Um, not, not to get too autobiographical, but I did, I was going through some Dzogchen practices and realized that whenever you do see that self-transcendence outside of psychedelics and in a regular mind state, there's really not a way to integrate that into the world in a way that you can stay, act, you know, it just seems kind of um, the Buddhists stop right there where, okay, it arises and it goes away and impermanence is a fact of the world, but we still have to exist in it. So it's almost like we have to make our permanence for ourselves or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk a lot about the equal importance of what you could call the absolute perspective and the relative perspective. So in absolute terms, there's just one existence that's unfolding and there are nothing is truly separate from it. But then as we engage in this process of kind of attempted separation as living systems, we become very concerned with our relative differentiation. You know, I'm this, I'm not the environment, I'm not you. Um, and so to me, the aim of, of kind of any spiritual practice is not to transcend, not to get into the absolute, just live there, um, because there's really nothing to be done there. It's just, it's just being. Um, and yeah. so it's to know it's there, to, to be able to navigate towards it, and then to live life in light of it. So you would always come back to where you are, um, but hopefully transformed in a fundamental way where you feel more existentially grounded. You know, you can go, you can be born, and then you're conceptualizing, you're living your life, you're building narratives, and you may have no idea what's going on. You may just really, you've never thought about consciousness or, you know, you don't, you're not interested in science and you, you just, you're just lost. You, you, know, you don't know when you're thinking, you've never meditated, you don't know if you're lost, when you're lost in thought. And then if you drill down and you find what's at the kind of basic level of, of just bare awareness of, of existence, that person will then come back. And they will just go, they can go on living their life in exactly the same way, but hopefully transformed where they now feel they have some intuitive sense of what's going on, that they are part of this unfolding. It's all okay because, because the self is a secondary phenomenon. The psychological self is not the be all and end all. So their anxiety around death doesn't have to rule them. They can really feel like after, after their personal death, that they'll be, they will still exist in some sense if they identify with just the fact of existence. All of these amazing kind of liberating insights one can have, I think that to be had and then to come back and live more wisely at the kind of relative level. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and I agree 100%. And I was mentioning that kind of just because I know there's a big trend in, in vogue is mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness can lead to that experience and, and um, without proper framing of it, it, can, it seemed to be, it could be a little bit off-putting to some. And so I think your work is really good because the way you describe your psychedelic experiences and the way that you relate subjectively to others, it helps reintegrate that, that experience into reality instead of being, because it seems like it could go one way or the other. You could detach from reality, knowing that staying in that being like you were talking about and be in a monastery or something, or you could integrate it into a way of showing empathy and basically those abstract emotional qualities that aren't really explainable. Um, those increase at least for me. And I know you had mentioned just briefly, I wanted to ask you about, you had mentioned uh, one of your videos I had watched about trauma, essentially being in the collective unconscious, like collective trauma 
being shared amongst everyone. And then whenever you do psychedelics, you kind of see how you could feel the empathy of the whole world. And you have to learn that if you're overly empathetic, that's bad and become self-aware enough to stand up for yourself and not be super agreeable, but you can realize the potential to take on the suffering of all of humanity. And that's a really cool take that I heard you say where that psychedelic experience brings you to the edge of that and says, oh, wow, I can feel the suffering of the whole world if I need to, but I can't handle it on my own shoulders. Um, and so you have to learn from that experience to, wow, I'm one with other, but I also have to be one with self in right. a way that allows me to exist. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe this is yeah, what people refer to as kind of paradox traditionally in, in spiritual traditions. But um, to me, I, I never like the word paradox because it sounds kind of like it's a contradiction, even though it's not really intended that way. But to me, you always the wisdom always comes when you realize the two poles and how to live in the middle in a kind of healthy balance. And there's, you know, before we engage in any of this, this kind of work, usually we're thinking in terms of concepts. Concepts are intended to kind of give an illusion of permanence. And we say, okay, the world is this way. This is good. That's bad. Um, and then, I mean, take something, you know, a really simple philosophical problem. Most of us live erased and live most of our lives thinking something like killing is always bad. You know, that seems like an easy, uh, easy kind of ethical problem. And then it's very quickly, you know, you can pose people different questions around mercy killing and all, you know, these other issues and, um, you know, if, if someone wanted to commit suicide, if they were in the worst imaginable situation, like I'm sure everyone could, could, could be given an example where they actually say, okay, in that situation, not so much. Like, I think it, it, that could be the ethical choice. So you, the answer is always somewhere in the middle. Uh, the con you know, these concepts like killing is always bad is, is uh, clumsy and, and overly rigid. And so to learn to feel your way into the kind of space in between these two poles, whether it's, you know, one extreme, you've got, um, pathological kind of sense of isolation of like narcissism and sociopathy and psychopathy and it's all about me and my ego and screw everyone else and you're hostile to the world at the other end you be kind of people pleasing self-negating people might take advantage of you and you end up in a situation where no good is coming of it um and so the yeah the answer is to find to find the middle ground um and then yeah with psychedelics i think they, they really help people often open up into this direction and if they're not careful, yeah, they could think, well, I've seen the truth that I am part of, you know, I'm you and you're me and we're all part of the same unfolding. So therefore I need to have this boundless empathy, but then they need to realize, well, again, that, that would be the perspective of just trying to get into the absolute, try to get enlightened and say, you know, there we go. That will be my finishing line. And instead yeah. of saying, okay, well, my, my circumstances, I am this separate living system. I do need to look out for myself as well. Um, so finding that balance is always the answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And psychedelics allow one that's overly agreeable to become a little more conscientious about other people's interactions with them. At least for myself, I knew I was a super agreeable person. And, and after meditating in psychedelics and, and having a little bit more of an experience of the ego being an illusion, it allowed me to stand, be less sympathetic in a way that empathy wasn't being a, a bad attribute of my personality, essentially. Right. Um, balancing that out. Yeah. I think, I think learning to set boundaries is, is a crucial um, psychodynamic process uh, that we don't really we're never consciously taught in our culture it seems but but learning to kind of feel out uh, that right balance yeah so the, the process I was talking about really comes down to boundaries of saying in certain circumstances I'm going to you know um, I'm going to erect walls and say like no this is you know this is where my limit is but there's an interesting like with someone who's who's 
antisocial, usually they have very aggressive boundaries and they might just say, things have to be done my way and if not, screw you. And so to me, the answer is always to have boundaries with a, with a doorway at some point in there where it's like you have, you can be approached, but it always, it has to be on certain terms that are respectful and, um, yeah. So when we're not, when we're not consciously setting boundaries, we tend to be kind of lost in whatever our coping mechanisms are for the stress of, you know, we're born kicking and screaming into this world as these, these vulnerable organisms. And that's a very shocking, you know, experience to go through. And then we're incredibly vulnerable for a long time. And in that process, we all learn certain coping mechanisms. Maybe it's to be aggressive. Maybe it's to kind of people please. And, and then we, we've lost a, a kind of, you know, I think in mainstream culture, we've lost the wisdom of, or the practices, rites of passage, for example, that would help us to leave behind habits that no longer serve us. And instead we end up carrying these things with us. And so I think psych you know, psychedelics, as they allow us to kind of change our, our brains and our minds and um, adapt, they're a really powerful tool to, to see this stuff and find a healthier balance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and speaking to that, um, what you had said earlier in that statement, I think there, I think it was Sam Harris or some philosopher of mine, kind of like him, who said something about separating the observer from what you're observing in such a way that self becomes so separate from other that you don't see your interactions with the world as having an impact, essentially. So if you're, you're basically looking through the microscope of the world and you're looking through that microscope doesn't collapse the wave function or it doesn't have an impact on what you're looking at. And so to me, separating the observer from what's observed allows that just increases your egoic mind because you start seeing other as a combative opponent to your success, essentially. Well, I've got to climb the pyramid, Maslow's pyramid, and I got to be accepted at the top to get to actualization. And in that process, you're, you're having to overtly separate self from other. And so you just get more conceited towards that goal almost where actualization doesn't ever occur because you're, you're stymieing it with the wrong pathway to actualization. Right. Yeah. That would be a, a kind of a neurotic dead end, I think. Whereas, you know, there's, there's a lot about our circumstance that we find ourselves in that's incredibly fortuitous. And one of those is that the process of self-actualization, you know, is not one of competitive rivalry where it's, you know, winner takes all and it's my, it's, you know, my positive feeling versus yours. We're with these incredibly, you know, social primates that are deeply interconnected. And so mutual independent, you know, interdependence, really is a process that's kind of necessary to get to real you know, high levels of actualization. So we find that as we, you know, I, I am convinced that we won't see significant, you know, there's a huge amount of suffering in the way that society currently operates. And I would like to see that change. And I don't think it will change unless we get a lot of people's kind of software in their minds running a different program and going from this kind of being lost in their own traumas and, and, and reaction kind of reactive dynamics through to having this kind of this process of actualization where they realize they're interdependent on others. And then I think, I think changing external structures kind of begins with this inner work. Um, yeah, because, yeah. because we're so interconnected. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, like you said, psychedelics leads to the to realizing the myth of, uh, and this is another quote from Sam Harris, but but the myth of the self-made man, essentially that that no matter how self-made you are, you're never right. self-made all the way because your environment put in place 
catalyst for your development in some way or another, whether it was having the, the resources to go to a college here or there or, or whatever, you didn't invent the resource that got you to that college, you know, so the, the self-made mentality that kind of exists in, the, in capitalistic societies, especially like in the U.S., it promotes self so much too. And, and this is an abstract thought I have, but it seems to me that capitalistic societies that are pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality does nothing but increase the self-made mentality, increase the ego. And it's really hard as a society, if you're increasing the thought of ego in your inner workings of your economy, then you can't really change the individual until you change that, if that makes sense. Right. No, until no, you change would, the structure. I would agree with that as well. I think that's the um, one of the hardest uh, things to face it. So, you know, uh, these things are always going to be kind of feedback loops. So uh, yeah, you, that's a really great point because to say that we have to start with the mind is really, that's not how it will work because if you have a, we currently have a, a system that pushes people. So the picture I was, I was drawing of, of people having been kind of lost in their own issues, all of these issues, because we have these living systems that, that are trying to stop ourselves from, from dying stress is a really fundamental kind of signal we use to navigate life but stress becomes trauma when it doesn't become resolved if we're not grounded and we can't kind of complete the loop of becoming activated in some way and then come back to being kind of to feeling safe um then we don't we don't complete that loop and so we have a we have a system that basically puts an, an enormous amount of stress on people um to to get basic necessities for life and so stress and trauma are kind of part of the system. And no matter how much I might say, okay, well, if we have a cultural change, the more people are engaged in healing work. And I mean, this is what I'd, I'd like to see, you know, as psychedelics become more mainstream, that people are more on board with this kind of way of seeing things and they, they're, they're healing psychologically, that, that will have its own pace. But the pace at which the current system is creating trauma and is pushing in the opposite direction is is like a freight train out of control. And we see that with destructing the environment as well. So there does have to be material change at the same time. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's just going to be, you know, trying to put out a raging fire with a tiny teacup of water. Exactly. Yeah. But, but still, like you were saying, the sovereignty of the individual and their mind being corrected has to accompany it. So both have to kind of occur simultaneously right, right. and the in the individual act, action that you can take with yourself is something actually practical i mean looking at reforming the actual e economic system in our governments is not super practical as a solution right. you know and so i understand yeah. that but but overall it does like you said it does need to be probably paired with with that exactly. um, i mean that's probably why i focus on the psychological side i mean partly because my background is kind of neuroscience and psychology but also that you know most projects well Maybe that's not true. I was going to say most projects to, to transform society have been kind of economical, um, about economics. But actually, if you go back, I'm pretty sure, you know, people like Jesus and the Buddha were, who are trying to change society. And I guess I'm trying to kind of advocate that there was a reason they did that through inner transformation as well. You know, so if, if someone thinks, yeah, I, I think if you if you implement a new economic system and you don't change, you don't heal people, you don't help people to to come out of their, their yeah. trauma and their reactivity, then you see the kind of horrors that we see in the 20th century where, you know, you can have all your revolutions and then, but then watch, watch as the most kind of psychopathic individuals take power and, you know, turn into yeah. kind of a horror show. Um, so yeah, so I think mm -hmm. that's, that's something that needs to be widely understood because if there are people out there who think we can just tweak economics without deep 
so you yeah. know, social psychological change i think that's a dangerous avenue to go down yeah absolutely because there's no way you could change the collective without starting with the individual I, I you know so i guess that's a good point that if you're going to change the economic society to mesh with a more de self and a less egoic mind you have to start with the individual mind and collectively change that i would so i guess it kind of just bi-directional in that relationship yeah and, i think also because like to me the uh, you know if i so there's this uh, degrowth movement around kind of climate change in particular of, of basically saying that the the growth incentive of our of basically every industrial society to to expand and kind of conquer more of nature and that is the core insanity that's that's destroying the planet and you know people in this camp are arguing that no matter what else we do if we don't address this kind of exponential growth imperative we're not going to be able to to stop climate change and I'm, i've been pretty convinced by um by their work and so to me shifting society to a, a situation where we're actually happy with a more subsistence level of you know everyone's everyone's got food and shelter and and basic kind of things but we're not we're no longer a consumer society we're no longer expecting gadgets and things but instead we find you know all the cliches of the best things in life are free you know these these are yeah. cliches because they're true that like yeah. if you lived in a peaceful community in nature with deep like close friendships where you spend all your time you know uh eating good food out in the natural world and and playing music and creating art with people and engaging in intellectual discussions like to me that sounds like a, a much better world you know much more enjoyable yeah. situation to yeah. live than living with with gadgets and if it you know if it saves the planet as well then you know all the better so but who's going to sign up for that without everyone becoming a little bit more like a kind of Kind of like a hippie you could say someone who's interested in meditation or sees the value in in this kind of simple way of living and forcing you can't force it on people that would be a, a kind of terrible way to do it so we really need if we're going to have mass support behind something like that we need we need psychological change as well um yeah because as you say you can't kind of force it on people yeah and, and like you said you can't force psychedelics on people of course but one interesting facet of psychedelics is i know you had a video kind of on why does lsd make hippies um but and, and the thing is, is it does have a connotation associated with it of laziness, of non-productivity, of, OK, we're going to just walk hand in hand into the abyss of uh, bliss, you know, forever. And, uh, and and the thing is, is that's just not true overall, because you've seen some of the most transformational processes occur out of psychedelics. And so I think it is important that the narrative of psychedelics not be this Timothy Leary high priest of LSD image so much so as it should be. This is an intellectual pursuit that can eradicate 90% of psychological treatment right now, essentially, maybe, I mean, that's, a, that, that's, I'm speaking out of, out of turn there, but, but it seems like they're very impactful potentially. And in a way that you can even cease to use them without withdrawal, if they're not dependent. And so it almost seems as if they're, they're not something that you're seeking more of after doing one time, you're, you're simply seeking life after that in a way that replicates that experience. Right. And I mean, also with, you know, speaking to kind of sustainability and, and, uh, you know, um, they if you're talking about psilocybin they don't require a kind of the huge kind of pharmaceutical infrastructure that we currently have people can grow their own mushrooms very quickly um the spores you know are like can be produced basically cost-free well not quite cost-free but like you can have systems that are incredibly effective and so it's it seems such a i mean once if you're in this perspective it seems such a no-brainer that this is the way to go um as you say i'm sure it could remove vast amounts of, of the machinery of the kind of pharmaceutical industry um, as people address their issues through 
psychological emotional empowerment rather than symptom uh, addressing symptoms but then of course we're back to the economics of it um yeah uh, yeah absolutely no i i agree um that was just my personal experience was i i did ketamine treatment and went through that yeah, and the process the process was was incredibly transformative and very very beneficial to me unlike any i would classify as the, the most incredible experience i've ever had um whatever that means. Um, but anyways, what it did was it allowed me to see all the reasoning for the constant personality I had. Basically, I had this personality that I acted in a way and interacted with self and other, never thinking about why I was doing what I was doing. I was just mirroring what I was shown and all that, that suppressed trauma that you mentioned quite frequently. And when you're talking about your ayahuasca experience and kind of your upbringing, those traumas you may not even know they're there and so without the psychedelic experience if you have experienced those intense traumatic things you may never be freed from its grasp if you don't have this experience kind of seems to me and i, I, don't, I don't want to paint a picture that life has to be dependent on an external substance to find actualization but for some people the way society is structured is it generates a personality and there's no way to get rid of it unless you can see through it at some point right i mean and also you know the the flexibility and the sense of self that arises with these kinds of experiences. You know, you could you could question the idea that these are external um, in any meaningful sense. That if you see yourself as part of nature, you know, in the same way that for me to be healthy, I need to interact with other humans. Um, interacting with these plants and fungi seems like a just a part of life. You know, humans have been doing this for as long as you know they've been human. It seems well, as far as we know, we don't really know that. Yeah. But um, so yeah, I, I think it's. Um, I think we are unnecessarily cutting ourselves off from part of our engagement as as an ecological being that exists in these ecologies because we want to we want to stand apart from nature right so we think we don't we don't need these things but uh it's not so much about needing them but just existing as a healthy part of the ecosystem i guess yeah yeah absolutely um and it seems to me that um sorry um that human i mean basically humans as they interact with their environment over time and they develop relationships with other, you can either progress in the direction of becoming more self-absorbed, seeing yourself as an opponent to the world, or you could see it as like you were saying, symbiosis essentially, where you do see fungi interacting the, you know, with trees and transporting nutrients and interacting symbiotically and mutualistically. And that's an integral relationship to the tree's survival. The tree doesn't even exist if it can't use that might that, you know, that fungi to transport necessary nutrients to some of its prodigy. And it even seems to me like some trees will pick out their prodigy and send extra nutrients to them, their offspring. So trees kind of have a little bit of a, a cerebral system that exists utilizing a relationship integrally with fungi. And so it's not that it's not that you have to be dependent on it, but trees and, and nature seems to have to form those symbioses to exist in general. And we deny that we need that at all. It seems like we, psychedelics help us see once again, we have to encompass other and self. Whereas if you don't, you think, well, I can, I'm self-made and everything, but there's no self-made. And that's a dangerous precipice to kind of start tumbling down because you can quickly just devolve the narcissism and treat others as if your interaction with them isn't going to make them go and have a terrible day after you talk, talk to them negatively. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's to me, thinking about concepts is really useful. So conceptual thinking, as I said before, is kind of rigid thinking and saying, uh, you know, I am a self, I am, I'm an island, I have a boundary around me, like a, I'm going to draw a border around me conceptually and say like, this is, 
this is James and that's it. Whereas actually the reality is interdependence. There are no, you know, as I said, in the absolute perspective, there's just this interdependent web of existence. Um, and so, you know, physics shows us this as well. It's, it's this single unit of unfolding. And so we're, we're fooling ourselves if we invest in stories of, of, of rigidity and permanence. And you're right, like the self-made person is a, is a perfect example of that. It's, it's really the most, <clears throat> you know, if I'm to account for what's happened in my life, the most accurate thing I could say is that there's a kind of lawful causal unfolding of events, you know, my genetics and my you know, upbringing and my things I've been exposed to. And I, I've just, I am this instance of this causal unfolding. And so that in that picture, there's nothing at all to be attributed to James as like a virtue or a vice or it just, it is, it just is in the same way that a tree grows the way it grows. You know, um, there's a spiritual teacher called Ramdas who used to say this thing about yeah. um, practicing turning people into trees. Cause he says, you know, if a tree is a bit bent, you understand, okay, well, if the sun was over there and it kind of it got bent cause it was growing towards it, but you don't judge it. And he said with humans, you know, we, we really discriminate and judge and say, well, you really shouldn't be like that rather than understanding their you know why they are like that and so it's again it's not that we it's not to say you know on the absolute level but there should there's always understanding to be had that things are always away for a certain reason and then what we need to understand is that when we do discriminate when we do say well stay away from that guy because he did this to me and you know those kinds of things are they are kind of maps they're relative kind of conceptual landscapes we use to navigate the world and so it's one thing to say if I say that guy's bad, what that means is that I'm, I'm offering you advice as to how to kind of you know, protect your own boundaries and navigate through the world. But what I'm not saying is that in his essence, inside, he is a bad person. No one is, is there, first off, there is no self that is, could be a permanent thing that could be good or bad anyway. And so it, it, it's, a, it's the same thing as mistaking your concept for reality. You know, at the start, I was saying we mistake uh, concepts in physics for like you know subatomic particles and we think they are the reality but they're not reality is beyond words it's just this this awe-inspiring unfolding and then we need to really be aware of when of the place of our concepts that they're just these symbols these maps that we use to navigate the world yep yeah absolutely and and going and speaking to your um basically how, how we want to see subatomic particles and how they evolve and how they get larger and how gravity coalesces matter into planetary bodies. And then we have abiogenesis, kind of like we talked about earlier. All of that process is what it is, but it seems dualistic in its nature as far as how it's, like you just said, it's, it's defined Einstein or Newton or whomever on the planetary side, but you know, the inverse square law applies to how gravity works. That, that applies to large, massive bodies. But that those theories always break down at that particle subatomic level. It seems like they're they're incoherent when they merge, and it may seem to me that is it. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Could they, maybe there's not a merging of quantum and large planetary systems in a mathematical manner, and and we have to accept that there's a duality there. There's a duality of of subatomic interaction with the uncertainty principle there, and then we have large bodies that are particles that we can determine their movements from. But we if we can't ever accept that, hey, they may never merge then we're stuck trying to merge something that's immergible almost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 li I really like that idea. My, if I had to put money on it, I bet I would bet that eventually we'll come up with some, some way to link them, but I don't think that's a guarantee. I think again, coming back to understanding that these are just maps that we have one game we play for describing what's going to happen to particles. We have another game we play when it comes to describing large bodies. 
And maybe those are just two different stories that don't link up really. You know, they don't, again, they're probably, I think there may be a way to bridge them, but I mean, I don't know <laughs> what the answer is. But the um, Yeah, exactly. The, it's hard to bridge those yeah. kinds of things. I mean, it's almost, and trying to bridge them, if there are not, if there isn't a bridge there that can be made, then it can be a lot of wasted time almost with, we're looking into every subatomic elementary particle using the Hadron Collider. And we're looking, we're trying to find this, that, and the other. Well, once we find it, what do we do? I mean, what are we garnering from that that introspection? Is it simply because we, we've already went so far down the rabbit hole that we have to keep pursuing physics in this way? Because if we do, we have to renounce all the work that's been done and say, okay, these don't merge. General relativity works, and we don't know why. Um, right. I mean, I wonder if there's, you know, it could be a case which kind of genuine emergence where if you, so if if you were like, okay, I have, I have my molecular story as to what James is as an organism. I can describe all the molecules that make him up. And then I have my uh, large scale kind of physiology story of, of, or say my body plan, like why I have two arms and my eyes are on the front of my head. And if in this analogy, you, you want to link those two and you want to have a single unitive theory, I, you know, that's not really the way to approach it. There are appropriate maps of those two scales, but you're not really going to come up with a good explanation um, I mean, this is about maybe a bad example because you could talk developmentally about kind of DNA. But if you wanted to to just stick to talking about the carbon atoms in my skin and you know those things and get a get an explanation of why the eye, my eyes are in the front of my head, you're not going to do it because they're just different maps. Um, so I think that that could be the case. But uh, yeah, I see, I see, and I know you you had a Neil Seth on one of your time one time right. on your podcast, and I read his book, which I really enjoyed his perspective, of course um very fascinating um work that he's doing and very i think very important because of trying to establish some kind of measurement of consciousness to where we can treat brain brain dead people or loss of consciousness type of patients better more more compassionately by knowing their level of consciousness which before it seemed like anesthesiologists were going off of a kind of a guess or an estimate as to if this patient conscious and you would have like a waking anesthesia where you would have somebody aware but unable to move and things like that and neil seth kind of said about the brain being a prediction machine, basically where it, we, it predicts the world for us and it's just simply a computer. And he, he thinks that as he probes into this um, easy problem, the hard problem will either answer itself or be a non-issue. What, what's your thoughts on the hard problem being kind of just diminishing as we pursue the easy problem? Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not convinced by that because you could always say, if you have a complete understanding of the brain, um, in terms of its kind of functionality, if you were to make a brain in a machine, or say if you were just to code up some software, you could never say if that software was conscious or not. If you had no theoretical stance on consciousness, if you were just like, okay, I've got all my theories of how light is transduced in the retina and all this stuff happens. <clears throat> with those kinds of descriptions you can come up with scientifically, you're never gonna, yeah, without taking that leap and saying, here's my stance on consciousness, you're not going to be able to say. So that's what I'm kind of trying to offer with the living mirror theory is to say, we know, we know that human organisms with brains are conscious and we, so as a, you know, my background is neuroscience and I spent many years baffled by the hard problem, but it was mainly what it felt to me was that my bafflement was coming because I'd been trained in a tradition where, as you say, the brain is seen as a computer. And so you're running these kinds of this software in the, in the brain and so somehow that software just suddenly becomes consciousness. And that's the leap that people seem, you know, I think rightly think that can't be done. You can't just go from, because, uh, you know, code, information processing is, is this kind of abstraction in a way 
Um, and so it's hard to imagine how that becomes the lived experience of genuine existence. And then the thing that kind of clicked for me was realizing, well, it's the the embodied act of being alive, that the yes. consciousness is this feeling, this way that we feel our way around the world. So you could say as simple as that, that all living things have to feel their way around the world and feeling is consciousness. You know, it's not, um, it's the same thing. You can't feel if you're, if you don't have consciousness. Uh, so that, yeah, I think you need to take an, a, a philosophical, I guess, uh, so I guess now I am saying my, my, uh, maybe not philosophical, a theoretical stance on consciousness. Yeah. And then you, yeah, you will, and you will never have proof of it, but we'll, to me, you know, I went from feeling like I was really scratching my head and like, how will this ever be answered to feeling like, you know what, I think this perspective makes sense. It doesn't prove anything philosophically, but you look at it from a certain perspective, you know, from the way I'm looking at it, it all seems to line up and make sense to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I, that's what really, that's what really strikes me as novel about your contribution, especially to consciousness and your living mirror theory that really, that I really find very intriguing is just that the, the idea of self-organization to more complex. I know that we were talking about entropy and it does, and your explanation makes perfect sense that it fits in with thermodynamics, but it's still novel that things are organizing upwards to a more increased where you have a central nervous system, a lymphatic system, and they're all operating. I mean, that is still fascinating that disorder and amidst disorder, that would be the way it manifests. Um, right. And uh, the way that I was looking at it in your, in your living mirror theory is basically as you start interacting with the environment, I was thinking in my head, potentially that creates the idea of time. I don't know if that, this is kind of a philosophical endeavor thing I was thinking on, and looking into it, I was like, okay, if everything's energy and mass, basically from Einstein's equation, speed of light's integral to that theory. And, and that's a measurement of meters per second. And so to introduce time would be introducing light per meters per second, essentially to that equation. You can't really analyze time until you have an interaction with the, your environment. So once an organism starts sharing gases and, and defecating and doing things like that and reproducing with its environment, inevitably time has to arise because you're trying to get somewhere. You're trying to increase something by exchanging things. And then at that point you have reference of, of time, which could possibly embody consciousness maybe. Yeah. I think if you think of, if you separate time in a physical sense from time in a um, psychological sense, I think you're totally right that I think change, if we use that word is fundamental in, in our existence, you know, probably the, maybe the most fundamental thing is that things are in flux, things are changing. Um, and so the speed of light, you could understand in the stepwise way, it's changing, it's changing. And if you extrapolate over time, okay, it looks like it has a miles per hour speed, but we're kind of abstracting that, but there's, there's just this change. And then it's when minds come into existence through the life process that we start to string these, these moments of change together and say, okay, I'm now abstracting that there's a direction here and I can, I can abstract that there was a past, a thing I can call a past where this present was in a different state. And I can abstract into the future. And then we, we, we tend to live in this way where we think this linear time is really real. But actually, I think there's just this kind of flux of the present moment. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's, an, that's an interesting phenomenon, too, to consider as, as being in space and time, being at your X and Y coordinate being one and two or something. But your time, you're still progressing in the dimension of time regardless. Um, but you're still just present. Basically, the past was already the present. The future is going to be the present. And so the more right. you interact with the present, instead of trying to fixate on the future, which never turns out the way you would probably uh, simulate in your mind, 
you can actually exist outside of a, like a time dilated way, which is maybe why psychedelics and things do affect time is because consciousness and time perception are integrally maybe related is what's your thoughts on time and consciousness? Yeah, no, I, I basically agree with, with what you're saying that I think it's the psychological kind of aspect of time is a, is a mental construct. And so when you dismantle that, that construct, you're left with a feeling of eternity. The present moment feels like it opens up into this eternal space and that often goes along with you also lose the the um the construct that you are a self that you know will exist for a certain period of time and you instead identify with just bare existence and so you also fall into an eternalism of realizing that you you as existence will always exist because non-existence isn't possible so you, you don't think this through logically like that but there's just this this awe-inspiring realization of this eternal being um, which is powerful, you know, that's, that seems to be at the core of these experiences that cure people's fear of death when they're dying of cancer right, in the psychedelic studies. Um, so it's, it's an important thing that we need to get out there, I think, as something that's not supernatural or inexplicable or something that fits with science, but it's just a wonderful thing to be discovered. Exactly. And to leave, and, and to leave a little bit of it into the realm of unknown and appreciate that maybe we won't know something. We may not know the heart problem, but if we can accept that, we can really... We can really drill into it further without having so much concern on is this going to solve the hard problem we can actually start accepting hey maybe our thought level doesn't advance beyond the idea of thought so so pursuing the hard problem can stymie research maybe in a way that's pro not productive as it could be we say okay we're, su we're subjectively having an experience we don't know why now let's figure out the things between there and here in a way that like you said psychedelics and, and meditation and eastern practices and it seems to me like the Vedic sciences, science in, in uh, quotations, but those are kind of like manuals to consciousness that are out that people wrote 5,000 years ago. Like when you read the Bhagavad Gita, you feel like you're reading metaphysics from Aristotle or something. You, you feel like this is right. You know, you feel like, wow, these people knew something back then 5,000 years ago about consciousness. They really did. They knew there was this Brahmin or, or whatever. Um, it just seems almost like the Bhagavad Gita was a pseudo metaphysical science that somebody kind of captured these ideas a long time ago yeah i mean they say that, right, that they, were, they were like uh consuming soma right this this substance yes. that, that uh so it's, yeah, it seems very likely that you know on the banks of the indus river something interesting was happening maybe involving a psychedelic uh, but yeah i mean yeah. there's only they had all the tools that we have when it comes to introspection you know science has not given us new tools of introspection so there's nothing and they were you know they were fully modern homo sapiens like we are. So it totally makes sense that they, their insights would be as valid as ours. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you had Brian Moore rescue on one of your podcasts and that was really fascinating. Um, hearing his dissertation on just going, I forget the school, um, the new school archeology, span basically that's looking into the, that kind of basically old artifacts, cups, chalices, and looking at their composition and seeing, does this have ergot in it or whatnot? But uh, his propositions on the the, the uh, sacrament and Christianity being psychedelic, or the um, Eleusinian mysteries being something of a psychedelic um, coming of age for a person, um, those traditions, like you were saying earlier, those might have been psychedelic and super integral to creating people like Plato, Socrates. Those guys may never existed without the mysteries, and if the mysteries were psychedelics, this could have been something that's almost required of our human existence to partake in at some point. Yeah, I mean, I. When it comes to the Elysian mysteries, like you just read the descriptions of, of the experiences that people had. And to me, it's, it's case closed that it's, you know, 
whatever word you want to use, psychoactive, entheogenic, like they're telling us that it was, you know, if someone, if someone says, oh, I consumed a substance and it gave me these experiences, then yeah, you almost don't really have to do any other, any other work. Um, alcohol that time, you know, you couldn't brew it to, to be, you know, alcohol wouldn't give you these experiences anyway. So it seems, it seems pretty clear to me. And yeah, Brian's work is, is great. I think yeah, it, most people tend to kind of, I think, try to, you know, dismiss it as, as, as just kind of fanciful, but yeah, I mean, to me, it just makes complete sense. And, um, yeah, I think there's a reason that, that fermented drinks have been so integral to kind of Western spiritual traditions from Judaism to Christianity, you know, drinking wine, um, in prehistoric Neolithic religions, it seems that beer brewing was really important. And if you are living close to nature and you know, all the properties of these different plants, you know, Potions are a thing that existed that we don't really have today, but clearly people had a mastery of the natural world and were mixing things together and producing interesting substances. And yeah, now we have the archaeological evidence as well. Yeah, and that, and that was really fascinating. Brian's work is really neat. Um, just like yourself, that was a really fascinating conversation. Um, and I, I, um, I find it interesting too, kind of that the oracles and things like that in ancient Greece, they and the shamans spoke very language that's very close to how we speak on psychedelic experiences today so right. like basically and so they were administering their way and they were going like you had explained in your ayahuasca experience how critical it was that that shaman saying to you at that exact moment the song that really helped ground you back and integrate better um the shaman had a role of, of a physician in that sense back then um and it was like you said it was really it was really um captivating to hear your your personal experience of how you know it wasn't just the taking of the ayahuasca, but it was the coupling of the ceremony that that's, you were talking whenever you, you realize, okay, my inner self is, is tormenting itself or existing. And you were able to put that to bed. It was kind of coupled with the shaman being there at the right time and administering the ceremony along with the substance with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating to reflect on it two years later. I barely, this barely comes up anymore. And I, and I, um, it, I mean, it was so powerful that, you know, it feels like it happened to someone else, basically, as you say, it really can put these issues to bed and, um, yeah. And, and yeah, you're right that it was, I mean, for me, they, it was my first group psychedelic retreat and that was a wonderful, at an extra interpersonal dimension, I'd done a lot of work solo, but then having other people, whether it was the shaman or the other people on retreats was, you know, most of, as I say, with social animals. And a lot of our wounding often comes into personal contexts. And so having safe, connected experiences with other people and psychedelics can be an incredibly kind of you know, powerful healing experience. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's what's so fascinating about it is um, the overwhelming virtuosity that kind of emerges on psychedelics where, and, and briefly going back quickly to the di like dialogues between Socrates and things of that in Greece, they, they were probing the idea of where does this virtue arise? Is it taught from student to teacher? Is it formal academia? Can I send my child to empathy school and teach them how to be empathetic? Like they were really curious about why do we choose to act in our own disinterest for others' interests if we're biologically oriented towards just survival of cells? That would make no sense. And so it was kind of back then, it was psychedelic in a sense. A conversation seemed psychedelic because they're probing, why do I love you? Because they're talking to each other. Why do I feel that? What, what is the go grand goal? Of, what, where does this virtue arise? Can I teach it? Can it, or can it be remembered? Is it divine? That kind of subject matter. 
And it seems to me that psychedelics almost help you remember how to be virtuous or remember that, oh, it's not just emotion and action. I can consciously will myself to be patient, to be kind. And as I do that, I can exist better in the present moment. Right. I think this comes back to the to the concept conceptualizing issue where I would say today and in the recent few millennia, we've had a very constricted sense of self. So it's not that it's normal to think the self is this body, but it's actually that's a very constricted sense. So when we relax those concepts, we remember that actually we are embedded in a larger organism. You know, we're like a cell in this larger human kind of community. Um, and we function as part of, we make it up and its movements affect us. And then we're embedded in this larger system of, of the earth and then the universe. And as you let go of your concepts, you, your sense of self expands until it's kind of not there anymore. And there's just being, and you're, you're, you are that. Um, and so, yeah, I think in, and it brings us back to what we we're talking about in terms of healthy boundaries, you just find what's the right level there. And I think for a lot of humans, it's like, you know, there's, there will be kind of nested hierarchies of like, if it comes down to it, you know, it is my responsibility to take care of myself. If I, if I don't choose to pay more attention to, to my activity when I'm crossing the road, if I'm instead trying to coach someone on the other side of the street to help them cross yeah. the road, that's the kind of neurotic thing. I walk out in front of traffic cause I'm not paying attention. Like then yeah. clearly I need to be a little bit more self concerned. Um, but then, yeah, having a sense where, if there's a close friend and something befalls them, you know, where you will help them unquestioningly because you, they are, they're so connected to you that it's as if it's happening to you, you know, that's a very healthy, nourishing way to be. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's also, you know, I think our societies are deeply atomized and fragmented. And so it can be the project of a lifetime to really build those kinds of connections. But to me, there's not really anything, there's nothing better to spend your time on while we're here, basically, in, in terms of yeah, you know, yeah. apart from self-actualizing. Yeah, it's an examined life. Is you know a non-examined right. life wouldn't be worth living kind of deal there, kind of sentiment. And and it, and it's not that it's not even a laborious or a tedious to really like look into it or probe into it uh, because as you do, it's fascinating. And so it, it it seems to me I I like I, I was very atheistic and militant atheist for a long time and chose to make that my identity kind of where I can I can kind of shove it in your face hey I know why your religion's wrong I don't know why that was kind of my personality I guess and wasn't very it wasn't a good way of being in the world at all um and whenever I realized okay there's something to this realm and I could stop being like that kind of egoic way of looking at other people and you open your mind you could start to dissolve that barrier between science and spirituality it's almost like there's a required merging of those two in a metaphysical sense in order to progress past where we're at with science like if we want to go further and want to look at the hard problem we can't keep looking at it as integrated information or the global workspace we have to look at it kind of as you've proposed it where it's emergent with interaction with the environment over time kind of right yeah so that's a great point so if you take if you took my you know theory that i think consciousness is tied up with life um, you could almost, you could almost go two directions with it. So there's this, there's this school of, um, of philosophy, well, a perspective on consciousness called, uh, illusionism where pe people kind of, uh, associated with Daniel Denner and Keith Frankish more recently, yeah. um, who argue basically that consciousness is an illusion. It's not really a thing that needs to be explained. It's just kind of, and it, you know, it can be tricky to understand what's meant by an illusion. And most of the time when this is said, you know, to me, it sounds kind of absurd because I'm like, you know, consciousness is the one thing I know exists. Yeah. But actually when I unpack what they mean, a lot of the time I'm like, 
I kind of agree with you in that I, I said at the start, I don't think consciousness is like a substance that needs to be accounted for. I think it's that it's just this is what it feels like to be and to hold beliefs about the world. And that's it. There is no extra thing. There's no magical extra thing kind of going on that needs to be accounted for. Now, the reason I'm not an illusionist is you could basically take that perspective where you're like, there is no extra magical thing that needs to be explained with consciousness. And the illusionist effectively says, if you accept that, that that's what that's our circumstance, they would basically say, okay, nothing to see here in terms of existence. It's just all naturalistic science is all unfolding and it's just, you know, this blind mechanism. You think you're having experiences, but you're not really. Whereas I go the route of there is very much something to see here in terms of existence. Like existence is awe-inspiring. And if you just yeah. confront it, there are there are experiences, the experience of just bare being is what people use the word spiritual to refer to. It's awe-inspiring, peak experience, amazing, whatever word you want to use. And so I think that's the piece that's missing, both from the illusionism, but also from mainstream conversations about, about um, consciousness. I think you, I don't think the spiritual experience thing is an extra additional thing to be explained. I think, you know, so what I'm trying to do is basically say, here's a theory that, you know, is just, it's a humble scientific theory, a proposal as to what might be an intuitive story we can tell about where consciousness exists. It's yes. not a metaphysical solution. And so it's just a humble scientific theory. And then if you come to me and you say, well, what about like, you know, why hasn't it explained away my consciousness? You know, why? And then I would say, it's a map. It's not supposed to do that, but take note. Like, this is what it feels like to exist. It's, it's all inspiring. It's, it's amazing. And yeah, you can have, it just, I mean, it defies words. I'm going to start stumbling if I try and explain it more. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the awe inspiring is, is something to be even probed a little further because just the emotional feeling of awe, like when you approach the rim of the Grand Canyon or something along those lines, I had built it up in my head. I was like, there's no way I'm going to arrive at the Grand Canyon and be too amazed because I've seen so many pictures, so many movies. I'm like, it's going to be underwhelming just because I've seen it so many times. And then I arrive and that overwhelming awe overwhelms you. And that right there in itself is the crux of it to me is an emotion like awe that can arise that if you really metacognitively feel it and look at it, you're like, what is this feeling? It almost feels anxiety mixed with excitement. Right. It's almost a re a recalcul a reconfiguration of anxiety into something positive. But you can't reconfigure anxiety purely physicalism. You know, physicalism would say you have this one part of the brain and that makes anxiety occur when it activates. Well, not if you know, not if anxiety can manifest eight different ways and different parts of the brain are creating the same. So awe in itself to me seemed like you were saying that gets at the crux of consciousness not being an illusion because that's like one of the purest emotions that really doesn't have an evolutionary backing. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like um, these feelings that are at the, seem to be at the base of our minds, by which I mean, you know, many people have attested if you meditate, if you just pay attention, you stop thinking and being lost in thought. These are the kinds of experiences you have. Um, to me, it seems like just the fact that we're these living systems that pull ourselves up by our bootstrap and we, we live on a kind of knife edge. We're constantly swapping out our parts and keeping ourselves together and trying to get food and doing all this stuff. Yeah. And we're very small in comparison to the, to the vast universe. And I think in that situation, there is a thrilling, almost overwhelming existential, um, it's just, a, it's an intense existential circumstance to find yourself in, constantly trying to stop yourself yes. from falling apart. And that can be, that's, I mean, that's the basis of all stress and trauma and every other fear is based on that fear of death, basically. But on the other hand, if you are in a flow state and if you feel safe and if you feel like you're, everything's, you know, you're, you're safe enough, within that safety it can be a feeling of exhilaration or all the things you were describing so i think there's a kind of 
there can be a naturalistic account of it, but it doesn't, again, it doesn't, dis, it doesn't explain it away or diminish it. It just means that like, I mean, when people have these experiences, they can very quickly think, okay, there's some kind of loving cosmic consciousness at the root of the universe, because why, when I stop thinking, do I suddenly feel this amazing bliss and just, I feel so good to be alive. I think there are probably just quite straightforward biological reasons for that, but it's still very, like a very, I mentioned earlier, there's lots about circumstances fortuitous. I think that's one of them. It just turns out the structure of our minds is that you can be liberated from suffering. Um, and at the end of the day, I think yes. that's what all of us want. Correct. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good way of phrasing it is it's almost like whenever you can cease to think or you can, you can lower the level of, of communicate because it seems to me like the default mode network in the brain that kind of creates an overactive self, at, at least at what I've read and understand that's kind of an inner hemispherical connective path, path, pathway kind of where the left and right can talk to each other and the hind brain can be a little bit more active. So you're kind of merging emotion with yourself all the time and time traveling backwards and, and trying to mind wander all the time. And that it's almost as if that default mode network's a negative aspect. It's overactive by our culture or, or something along the lines of where we created this overarching sense of self. It's not intuitive to develop that. It's like babies and and things like that don't aren't born with this overt sense of me and other, and we're going to have this separate theories of mind. But so it's almost like society or culture incorporates that. And then we almost have to reconfigure ourselves to make sure because society's reconditioned us and coached us the wrong way. Almost the mental structure of how we get to actualization leaves so much potential unactualized. Yeah, I think you're totally right. The, the, the self is a very flexible concept, but most of us don't realize that we're just pushed into the most minimal constricted version there is and there's lots of good work to be done to undo that yeah 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 um well yeah that that's interesting and one last thing i know i kept you a little long it's a little bit over that's an hour good. now but i wanted to i wanted to ask you since since you're looking at more of the interaction with the environment a self-constructing complex organism kind of arranging itself over time that that interaction being the conscious element of it have you looked into or heard or heard about kind of the idea of memory being formed in microtubules of the cytoskeleton in the neuron? I'm sure you have. I, I don't know much about it, but it seemed like when I when I read your your stuff work, I looked into your work a lot. I was like, this makes sense. And then I saw this theory. I was like, wow, this almost seems like yours, and that almost couples science and philosophy together to really make what you're saying work. Yeah, I mean, there's the Roger Penrose's stuff around consciousness and microtubules, maybe. The, yeah. And yes. in that, there's, um, yeah, I've, yeah, I mean, he's a very, um, you know, highly respected physicist. But with the consciousness stuff, I've never, I've never seen it really as a solution. I've, I mean, every cell has microtubules, um, and they're, they're largely thought to just be structural. I mean, you, you know, given that every cell has them, and I think every living system, including cells, are conscious. I see what you're saying. That actually, he's, he's basically. As I understand it, he's saying that, um, I mean, he's thinking computationally and he's saying, I think that certain things, he's saying consciousness can't be computed, but something about the kind of collapse of the wave function at the quantum level, yes. quantum computation yes. could kind of solve this issue and microtrials yes. are at the right scale that that could happen. Yes, that's right. I it's think so. Of, I think that's how it is. Yeah. I think, I don't necessarily think it needs to be explained at that kind of quantum level. I don't. Yeah. He's he's telling a story that I guess doesn't resonate with me, but I respect yeah. it as like, you know, he's a physicist who has a better grasp of the physics of this stuff. Um, but yeah, this is a good, good question. I'll, I'll re I read his book, Emperor's New Mind, as a teenager. I'll go back and have a look at it again, I think. Okay, yeah. No, yeah, and that was kind of, I don't know. Obviously, it's very complex neuroscience and very complex 
particle physics, essentially. You're right. looking at uncertainty principle. You're looking at Schrodinger's cat kind of idea of in your brain, essentially consciousness arising when you mentally right. collapse a quantum function. Exactly, Basically, yeah. you're performing quantum computations at the atom level in the brain. And so it's very intriguing, but it, it kind of merged with your, just because it's interaction. And it, it wasn't even Roger Penrose. Actually, it was another gentleman. I'll, uh, I'll send you a link to the, he's a physics okay. professor at Yale. And he actually went further than Roger Penrose on the philosophical side of this. And okay. Roger was so much physical. And so I was like, wow, this gentleman, and the way he was explaining it made more sense to me. And then I look, and then your theory, it's like, well, this kind of makes sense. Um, this idea of looking at, okay, this is the science of it. This is the philosophy of how and why things are consciousness arises. This is where it's encoded in the neuron. It it his it was kind of intriguing to me to see how yeah. okay well it's unpredictable the way microtubules will send down the axon the way that that neuro that way that, that transmission occurs is unique in the way it goes almost every time it's a unique combination and so where does that uniqueness come from is that a conscious equivalent of conscious will occurring in the very synapse of the neuron potentially um, yeah, and yeah. if it is that kind of explains how we can mediate between future gratification and present present acceptance and you know kind of thing where maybe the mediation of conscious will arises at that quantum level and then it gets to the pyramidal neurons up there and then at that point you can actually will something into being or something along those lines yeah i'd love to read that i've not yeah come across that i mean my my stance on on free will is is kind of oh yeah you mentioned sam harris before it's kind of similar probably the same as his which as i understand it is effectively that both subjectively and objectively free will doesn't make much sense in terms of libertarian free will of, of like truly being able to it comes back to the kind of self-made person truly being able yeah. to do something unconstrained by circumstance seems to be a kind of fantasy um, and there's just really a causal unfolding and that even if you look it, it, even if you introspect there's not really any evidence of, of free will things just kind of enter into consciousness from a kind of mysterious background yeah, exactly. And that, that was something I was thinking about recently. When I watched your video, you kind of used that analogy of if somebody's at a fork in the road and there's fire, there's a forest on fire to the left and they have, they can't really choose the left. It's not, right. you know, they can't go into, you know, that, that, that decision's almost not there. Um, and it's a situation like that where your biological response to stimuli occurs prior to your conscious awareness. Right. But then whenever you look metacognitively and you start thinking, well, okay, I need to stop doing these behaviors now in order to do something better. And I found myself recently being able to do that in a way where I was like really upset at myself that I was having to say no to this, but I actually was cognitively aware of, wow, I'm saying no to the will because of the future. And before I was just whimsically kind of operating in the world. I was kind of like, well, I'm going to do this and who cares if I do that? It doesn't matter. Then I found myself, wow, I'm actually cognitively uh, looking at this situation as I can't do this because I need this to happen in the future. And then you start realizing, wow, that's the nature of consciousness is, wow, I'm actually considering with reason, do I need to stop doing what I'm doing now? So in two years, things are better. Well, that's kind of the crux of humanity is where you can make that choice. But that's almost conscious will and free will to me um, is something different. It's like if you hear a loud noise and you jump away from it, that's not really under your control. But you can't apply that same logic maybe to complex cognitive thought to the point where it becomes nihilistic, where, oh, well, there's no free will, so I can just ruminate all day and things will fall on my lap, kind of type yeah. deal. Yeah, really, it does really feel like we have kind of conscious choice and there's something that goes on where we have autonomy to make decisions. But my, the consciousness part, I really feel consciousness is just a kind of passive witness that everything is kind of unfolding in a lawful way 
and conscious it's yeah. just being observed in consciousness so you know when i think about free will I, I especially you know if you think of the entire population of the human race to say there's free will would suggest that the people who are really suffering have kind of got uh, to blame to some extent whereas i think oh, yeah. there's, there's there's just there's just influence really there's just us having effects on each other you know the reason i the main reason I speak kind of in public is because I hope to be a positive influence. I hope that talking about these things will land with people. Maybe someone will go meditate. Maybe they'll become interested in psychedelic therapy, you know, and I think this is the best thing we can do is just, you know, because I don't believe in free will, I think the more we talk about these things and we just spread positive, um, you know, we try and elevate the, what's going on, uh, bring people out of suffering and into healing and, and peace and collaboration. The, you know, and it's always, it's going to go the way it's going to go. And I'm doing what I'm doing because of who I am and because of my history. So there really is, there's nobody home when it comes to a kind of conscious agent who's forcing things to happen. It's all just kind of lawfully unfolding. Yeah. It's almost like insight and intuition that comes after meditating or psychedelic. That doesn't come from you. You know, it's not the self that's just having these insights all of a sudden. And uh, I agree with you. I think that free will as a, as the, as the element of it is an illusion and the implications of that are so far reaching even into like crime and punishment type philosophical approaches. Like, can you really punish someone for their actions if there's no free will? So you kind of run into some, but like you said, I don't like the word paradox either because it's not a paradox because inevitably it's how it works. And so right, it's, right. it's merely a result of the, of that. So I, I, I agree with you. And I think that when you look at free will as an illusion in the sense of, okay, I can't go into the burning forest because you can't, you, you just can't, you can't walk in there because your biological instinct is to survive. And so are you, your free will, even if you wanted to go into the fire, you couldn't do it because your, your right. organism that's against that. And I think the analogy used in like the Vedic sciences for consciousness is like you were saying a witness where they show a chariot. And I think one of their gods, Krishna or something like that is, operating the chariot and the self is sitting behind him the, the higher self is behind him in the chariot watching him and the reins that he's using to hold the horses is the mind and the horses are the senses right. so it's kind of like an integrated mind self intellect and um, personhood all and the consciousness sits in the background and watches the intellect battle the mind to control the senses kind of analogy right yeah 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 i definitely think of consciousness as this it's far simpler than we might think actually it's just this witnessing um, and yeah. that fits with this kind of non-attached perspective where you just let go into this non-dual realization that there's just this unfolding and there are these different islands of witnessing. But the, when you do that, you feel completely at home in, in the universe. And that's the good news that's to be found at the bottom of your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's very freeing. I think, it, like you said, I'm, I think it's very, I mean, it's very impactful what you're doing to try to make this public and all that. And I think there's something very freeing about understanding free will as an illusion. It's not this taking away of your individual sovereignty. It's not this violation of selfhood. It's an increase of individuation right, almost right. because you're subjecting yourself and submitting to this causation, this ultimate cause of all causes kind of deal. And but you uh, are the I unfolding, that, you know, yeah. you, you come to identify yeah. with the unfolding itself. So it's, it's surrender to, into a greater sense of self rather than, you know, it's, there's this, if you identify as, a, as a, an ego, then you don't have any freedom. You don't have the freedom you want. But if you identify with everything, it, everything is unconstrained. It's just doing what it's doing. It's in, the universe is, is doing the thing that is most in its nature. 
that's kind of what it is for to lawfully unfold. It's it's completely unconstrained and out of control in the most wonderful way. And if you identify yeah. with that, there's 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 true freedom in the sense of liberation. Not in terms of I want to be choo- I want to be free to choose this or that, but it's just complete liberation and openness and freedom. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's such an incredible thing. And as I've looked into it and uh, into the hard problem, I've really enjoyed the insights that come along with meditation, coupling it with in the literature associated with it. There seems to be, if you read the right literature coupled with the right psychotechnic practices, and you do this with con- conscientiousness, you can get to conclusions that just don't seem to be your own or things like, okay, I know this about the universe now. I know that consciousness permeates existence and that the neural network in my head is simply perceiving it. You know, Before that, I had this overt thought that consciousness was simply being aware that I would die one day that I was a self that would pass away. And that was what I thought consciousness was. I never thought about it past. I, I'm aware that I exist kind of philosophy. And then to start realizing, oh, consciousness is much more than being aware of my expiration date and acting in accordance with that. It's much more than that. It's the fact that I can enter this room and the, you know, the whiteboard to me, you know, elicits some type of emotional response separate from you. And that, that there's where it led. And um, I wanted to say that a lot, most, a lot of your dissertations and all of your talks you've done on your channel on psychedelics and your, your process going through that has been excellent and a helpful tool to me because like I was telling you, I kind of went through the ketamine treatment and things like that. And the integration by the professionals wasn't really there. So I was relying on YouTube and books to help integrate this process without having a foreground. And you really, the way you describe it, the visceral nature of it, it's like I can vicariously integrate through your, your, the way you explained your experiences. So I wanted to just say, I really appreciate your candor whenever you made those videos and, and the way you walk people through that process. It's very, very helpful. Oh, that's great to hear. Thank you. There's, there's no higher praise than hearing that I've actually helped with someone's kind of healing process. Oh yeah. And a big, really a lot. Um, I, I identify with your experiences, um, your, your, the re- where you were at, um, why you felt the way you did your ayahuasca kind of awakening type experience. I just identified with the foreground of it as far as the exposition, the background. I had the same type of experiences over, over and over again, it seemed like. And so I was able to intellectually understand it through your videos. And so I think that's an incredible uh, thing that you're doing by making those. And so I wanted to just say that psychedelics have promise and uh, it's better off for people like you to be promoting them. So that's really great. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's great to hear because it's um, against my uh culture as a as a, someone who's raised as a reserved English person to be very open on the internet about my deepest most vulnerable kind of personal experiences and so it's yeah, nice to get yeah. feedback that is helpful oh <laughs> yeah just no, and I could feel it too exposing. yeah no and I could feel kind of the anxiety that you probably had just you know talking about that but that that even helped that helped relate to it because I was like I would like to talk about this but oh I'm seeing yeah. somebody really break out of it and say it we're all in the similar so, situations facing the similar stuff yeah, yeah, it was, and you could tell, like, you, you, it was very meaningful to you, but you were able to get through it and explain it in a way that was subjectively identical to mine. And so, some of those things that I found on YouTube, things that you said, your theories on consciousness, a lot of that stuff really helped integrate. I think the use of the internet and finding stuff that you, your work really helped me integrate all of this suffering that I didn't understand where the origin of it was. I knew I had agency in it, but wasn't a hundred percent sure how much of that agency was mine. And so I did, I started, I introduced the psychedelics and meditation and ceased the psychedelics and just pursued meditation, but didn't have the foreground by which to integrate this, all of these insights. And so I think it's incredible work. I know I've stated that three or four times, but it really is incredible. Nice work. To hear. <laughs> and I, yeah. uh, I couldn't be more 
I think that work like that is going to be, like you said, what starts changing at the individual level, the overall consciousness. So that's really cool. Um, and uh, I really uh, found it very useful. Yeah, thank you. And I, I, I think we're lucky to live in a time with the internet and the kind of information technology we have to be able to spread tools of integration. I'm hoping that will make the difference this time with psychedelics hit the mainstream, that people will be able to integrate and and have, you know, really positive experiences without, rather than getting lost in, you know, we spoke earlier about just getting, entering in a more kind of dissolve, you know, we spoke around Timothy Leary and then the kind of that way of, of, of thinking about psychedelics and I think in the 50s, society in America was so rigid that the counterculture burst into the complete opposite of, um, of, of kind of complete chaos and disorder. Um, there's an interesting process called schismogenesis in cultures where neighboring cultures often define themselves as the complete opposite of, of their neighbors. So, you know, I think there's two cultures in the, um, in the Arctic where I think it's the Inuit and another culture where one uses kind of kayaks and the other one uses snowshoes and they're both incredibly useful tools, but each culture refuses <laughs> to use the other one. So the people who wear the snowshoes refuse to use the kayaks and vice versa. And you see yeah. this all over the world where it's like, we define ourselves by, we don't do what they, what they do. I almost wonder if in the, in the sixties, we saw that with psychedelics, that it was people wanted to be the complete opposite of the rigid culture they were raised in. So free love and you know chaos and disorder, but that's not going to produce, we need a balance of order and disorder. So I'm hoping with the, these kinds of conversations with information technology, I think, I think there's a desire now to reach a synthesis. Um, you know, we live in a post-psychedelic, post-60s world now. Um, and I think we're ready for a healthy synthesis of these two perspectives. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. Um, and I think the framing around it in the 60s too, might not even have been so much free love and anti-work and, and devolving society as it was just propagated as it was that. I mean, in right. the US yeah. at least, Richard Nixon called Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in the world, yeah. put him in prison multiple times. Yeah, yeah, and when yeah. you have the person who, when you have a president who's violated the oath of the constitution and been impeached calling a psychedelic <laughs> Harvard professor the most dangerous man in the world, you've got a really juxtaposition there. You've got something wrong. Your society's inverted, you know? Right, and so you don't right. know what the accounts of history are really, were they psychedelic gurus that were just all quitting and dropping out of society and ruining the world? Maybe not, but they definitely didn't want people thinking for themselves in a way that would, you know, lead them away from the material world. I know that there was a political urge, at least to not have people engaging in things that got them to drop out of the world. I mean, uh, the, the, president, the way the U.S. was ran post-industrial revolution, in, wants nobody to individualize outside of climbing right. this hierarchy. And so those, I could see psychedelics on a mass dosage or mass use in the U.S. making lots of people quit their, you know, go and do something more meaningful. And I don't think right. the government wanted people to do that. So it could be that we have the same thing occurred this time, but we, since we have people like you, people who are helping people integrate these experiences. They're not just dropping out and going and living in the in Woodstock, they're able to take them and still live in reality because of access to all of this information. Right. No, I think you're I think you're totally right, actually, that the these structures are not I think this time around one of the biggest problems is going to be um structures that don't want people to actually actualize themselves and empower themselves and live a sustainable life. You know, if 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 enough Amazon workers stop working for Amazon and it's it, and Jeff Bezos starts losing his work, losing his wealth. I'm sure his his first thought will be, how do I 
how do I reverse whatever process is happening so that I can keep having the power that I have? People don't like to lose power. I'm not casting aspersions on him in particular, but he's using him as an example of people who are benefiting from the current system won't like it if radical change happens as a result of mass psychedelic use. So I think we'll face the same changes again, uh, the same challenges again. Yes, we will. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting because it's kind of evolving the psychedelic treatment becoming in the foreground, at least in the US, where ketamine has been Ketamine's now commonly used, it seems like, lots of ketamine treatment facilities, and now psilocybin, I think, is going to become, at least I know Johns Hopkins over there, um, the MAPS program, I believe, you know, they're getting it pushed through the FDA for psilocybin treatment. So I think that it's pretty novel, and I'm really hopeful that this clinical inpatient approach, I don't know if that's ever been done before, but if it's done right, I mean, and you actually have the inpatient psychoanalysis coupled with, instead of just... Because what my experience with ketamine, the infusions I had, they threw me in the room, injected me with it, and left me in there. And so I was very disoriented and without direction. Right. So when I left, when I left, I just almost died, you know, and then I was exiting the <laughs> facility and they were like, all right, you can call an Uber now. And I was just like, oh, do I just go back to living now? Wow. So I think that that, yeah. that experience was, it was really profound and it changed my whole life. I mean, I don't mean that too lightly. It sounds kind of woo-woo, but it's not. But it wasn't because of the way that they integrated it for me. It was because of right. having to do a lot of work afterwards to make sense of this. Otherwise, I would have just been disposed to the whims of whatever it showed me. So I, I, right. I was kind of appalled by the lack of psychoanalysis that was done and the lack of trying to couple therapy with the infusions. But I think that's not super common. And so I think as long as they're not doing it super for profit and capitalistically, as long as you make sure that people are given proper integration and this inpatient psychedelic. Thing, it seems super novel in the world and and it could be to what changes what are, what are your thoughts on just inpatient psychedelic administration that could be a really big game changer right yeah i think it's the, in the beginning we need for the mainstream medical establishment things like that to, to have enough people to plant enough seeds that then everyone has a cousin or an aunt or a father or mother or someone they know who has benefited from psychedelic therapy and then i think people will start to I'm, I'm in favor of people, you know, being able to grow their own mushrooms, consume them themselves, create community centers and networks of support. I think, I think networks are way more robust than these kind of rigid systems of you have to go to this particular specialist. And, you know, I think we can trust people to engage with these things wisely in a way where, um, it becomes part of your ongoing journey as, as a part, as a person, rather than you think of yourself as someone with a mental health issue who needs treating. You, you're empowered to take this stuff into your own hands. Absolutely. Um, no, that's excellent. Excellent point. And, and, and hearing your experience and everything and, and you paralleling it to how it helped you tra your transformativeness as far as understanding trauma and where it originates, it made, it made me realize that there's probably a lot of people out there who just don't know where the trauma comes from. And so their right. actions and their, 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 their way of being in the world is dictated by some, something that they may not even know they need to look into. And so it's just, uh, it's, it's overwhelmingly um, kind of compassionate, the fact, this whole idea of psychedelics. It's, 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 it's just, right. uh, to me, it's just the fact that people are promoting them, the fact that people like you are trying to help people integrate them. It's just, a, it's a human movement. It's, it's very, very neat to, to watch unfold. People really caring about people suffering, people wanting to provide aid at a deep level of saying, look, society and your culture and your upbringing function, created your cognitive perception let's rewire that and uh, in kind of with neurogenesis and, and stuff like that that they're saying with psilocybin i mean you're rewiring connections in the brain to form 
you know, to repair damage. And so the fact that the mind is dynamic and the brain can change with the mind like that kind of adds another element to consciousness to where you see, okay, it can't be a physical, at least type physicalism where it's this one-to-one ratio of mind to matter. But the fact that the brain can rewire itself and new neurons can grow, it means there's some intelligence there driving the mind and the brain together, which is kind of fascinating overall that, that it can do that. Yeah, I think it's secondary to the life process. The life process always finds a way to keep going. And then yeah, that's true. the origin, the engine of intelligence and everything else. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fascinating. And I think that your, your living mirror theory gets at the crux of the methodology. It just seemed to me, it seems like it makes sense once you start exchanging and interacting that's with the environment and, and reshuffling your interaction with the environment to more complexity. It almost has to be conscious then because it's self-organized. So it's, it may not, the hard problem, if we can accept that we don't know the answer to it, but we know that consciousness arises out of interaction with organism and environment that kind of does explain it. At least it's all in my right. head. I was, I was really stuck and I was like, what am I going to find? I read all these theories, panpsychism, and then all the crazy theories out there, you know, of consciousness. And you finally find one right, that right. makes sense to you. And he oh, kind of puts to bed that. a lot of those issues um, where I, I would stay up and be like, what can I, I need to figure out tonight. What is this? You know? <laughs> and uh, at least I was able to put to bed that, that overwhelming inquiry in my mind for now. And then look into Roger Penrose and, and that um, uh, microtubules part of it. And it seemed like, wow, these, these guys are uh, onto something over there at Oxford. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's great to hear. I, I'm glad to know I'm not alone. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And uh, I'm fascinated with that. And I also wanted to ask you about your Portugal project. I wanted to ask you um, if you wanted to describe that a little bit. I, I saw about it, but I didn't read too much and what your goal with that is. Just that Yes. So we have a, um, a farm in the mountains of southern Portugal uh, that we call the Surrender Homestead. Um, and when I say we, it's me and my wife. Um, and we're, yeah, we're going to kind of be opening it as a retreat center, mainly for kind of meditation retreats. Um, but generally, all of the things I talk about here, you know, doing talks and workshops and stuff like that. Um, COVID's made it kind of tricky. You know, everything's under construction at the moment. But I'm hoping, uh, let's say by next year, that we, yeah, we're doing this in early 2022. So okay. 2023, hopefully people will be able to come um, regularly for retreats. Wow, that's great. That's fascinating. Awesome. And what made you choose Portugal? Just curious. Is it yeah, so, uh, It's mainly, we want it to be uh, in Western Europe, ideally, and um, want to be somewhere with, with nice weather that people would want to come to. Uh, awesome. Yeah, and then when you when you look, you know, it's between places like Spain, Italy, Greece, Portugal. Uh, Portugal just is a beautiful country. It's very cheap to live. Uh, lots of cheap land. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's very it's very it's a hidden gem. You know, it's not got the same kind of profile when it comes to tourism that other countries have, but it's. it's as beautiful, all the medieval castle hilltop towns you'd expect to see in, wow. in Europe, and uh, especially the coastline. It's yeah, it's wonderful. That's awesome. But yeah, that that description just makes it seem like the perfect place for a retreat. So yeah, uh, I think that's great. No, I think that's an excellent work. I I, uh, I hope I hope to follow it. I'll follow it and follow, and see how it goes. But that is a great endeavor. I uh, I think the work you're doing is fascinating, and I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me today. It, uh, means the world to me it, uh, I really enjoyed it and I think the work you're doing and the, the neuroscience of it and everything it's, it captivates me beyond beyond and and the visceral connection that I had with how you vicariously walked through your your ayahuasca experiences and I know I said that earlier but I just 
it does, it does mean a lot to me. And I think that your work doesn't go unnoticed on not just intellectual level, but the emotional level too, for people. That's great to hear. Thank you. Yeah. It's been really, really great talking to you, Ethan. It's, um, it's been an, an unusually far ranging conversation, which I've loved, you know, you may have seen in my work, I, I try to be unconstrained to talk about whatever I think is important. Yeah. And I've really enjoyed the kind of weaving in and out of loads of different topics. Yeah. It's, it's been kind of all over the place, but it kind of came back to a fabric of something at the end, yeah. but yeah, I very much enjoyed it. That was uh, comprehensive and uh, just surface level, but I liked it. Um, I appreciate it. Hopefully we can talk again soon. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it again, uh, Dr. Cook. And, uh, I uh, will be talking to you soon and thank you very much again for coming on. Uh, your work is uh, absolutely integral to uh, the study of consciousness, I think. And I, I, uh, I think it's something excellent. Great. Thank you. That's great to hear. Thank you, Dr. Cook. Have a great rest of the day. Yeah, you too. Bye.